0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and thanks for joining us for this episode of New Books in Philosophy, which is part of the New Books Network. I'm Robert Talese. I'm Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the program with Carrie Figder, Malcolm Keating, and Sarah Tyson. My guest today is Katerina dutil Novais. Katerina is Professor of Philosophy and University Research Chair at Rye University, Amsterdam. She's also a professorial fellow at R.K. at the University of St. Andrews. Katerina specializes in the philosophy of logic and the philosophy of mathematics, including the history of logic and argumentation theory. In addition to all that, she also pursues work in social epistemology, philosophical psychology, and political philosophy. Her new book has just been published with Cambridge University Press. It's titled The Dialogical Roots of Deduction, historical, cognitive, and philosophical perspectives on reasoning. Now, if all men are mortal and Socrates is a man, then it must be that Socrates is mortal. What could be more obvious than that? Well, sometimes obviousness serves to conceal difficulties, um, and there's a lot more going on in this simple deduction than we often recognize. For one thing, we're not being asked to assess whether all men indeed are mortal. Nor are we asking whether Socrates is indeed a man when we're running this inference. Instead, we're focusing on the logical relation that obtains between those two claims and the third, namely that Socrates is mortal. We claim that the third statement follows from the combination or conjunction of the first two, or that the third is entailed by the combination or conjunction of the first two. But what's that? (laughs) How does that work? Uh, It seems like magic, doesn't it? Um, So despite the obviousness of, so deduction, um, there are all kinds of philosophical questions um, that need addressing. And in her new book, uh, Katerina argues that deduction arises out of practices of dialogue. Now, as usual, there's a lot to talk about. But we should also begin, as we normally do, with our author and guest. Hi, Katharina. How are you?
1: Hi, Bob. Thanks for having me. Uh,
0: thank you for joining us on New Books and Philosophy. Um, so we usually ask uh, the author to begin, uh, you know, start us off with uh, uh, telling us a bit about uh, themselves. So uh, can you tell us a bit about yourself, Katharina?
1: Sure. Well, so I was born and raised in Brazil. I actually also spent two years of my uh, uh, teen years in high school in France. And uh, so, yeah, so that's basically where, uh, you know, I I was formed as a, as a person, uh, right between Brazil and France. And also in France, in these two years in France, this is really where my love for mathematics first emerged. And that's one of the motivations for writing this whole book. So that's why I think it's kind of relevant to mention then after that, I studied mathematics and, and philosophy and mathematics, so major in philosophy and minor in mathematics at the University of Sao Paulo, which is my hometown. And yeah. then I moved, in 99. I moved to the Netherlands, first to do a master's degree in uh, logic at the University of Amsterdam. And I just ended up staying in the Netherlands, so I've been here since. Uh, I then went on to uh, write a PhD thesis on Latin medieval logic, right? so I really started my career as a historian of logic. But I was already also very interested in uh, using, say, lo- modern logical tools uh, to also to study these historical logical theories. So I worked a lot on formalization. That's been that's also something I've, I've thought a lot about. And uh, yes, yeah, so after that, well, I also spent uh, two years, almost two years in New York. And my hangout place in New York was the CUNY Graduate Center, right? So that's also your <laughs> alma mater. Yes. Oh, we didn't overlap. I think you were gone already by then. But I have heard about you already, even back then. You know, <laughs> your your reputation was. Still <laughs> they can't right.
0: prove any of it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you no, know, that's true. But I mean, there was your presence was still felt. Let's put it like that. And yeah, it was a really nice time. I really liked the the, the Graduate Center a lot at the time. Uh, after that, so I then went back to the Netherlands, and I've been, you know, following. Doing, doing my thing ever since uh, here. You know, it, I was in the University of Amsterdam, then I spent seven years at the University of Groningen, and now since 2018 I'm at the, at the free university in Amsterdam and uh, so I've worked on a number of different things. I've worked on, as I said, I started working on medieval, Latin medieval logic uh, but then my second my first postdoc project was on paradoxes, so comparing modern and medieval solutions to, solutions to the paradoxes after that, I worked on actually on notations and, and formalization and what exactly the, the, the cognitive impact is of using notations when you're doing logic, when you're doing mathematics. And that the result of that project was a book called Formal uh, no, Logics, Oh, my God, sorry. Formal Languages <laughs> and Logic. And this book came out in 2012, also with Cambridge University Press. And after that, my next project, because here in the Netherlands, we... Uh, you know, if you're, if you're lucky, you get those big uh, grants, you know, that fund, mm-hmm. fund research for, for quite a few years. And so my uh, project after the one-on formal languages was called The Roots of Deduction. And it's mm-hmm. exactly the project that then led to me writing this whole book. And there really the question was, you know, well, let's try to understand what deduction is all about. Because uh, as you mentioned in your introduction, it seems simple, but it's not. And so I, uh, you know, I, I really wanted to approach the question of deduction from different angles. So historically, philosophically, formally, but also from the point of view of, of cognition and also the point of view of mathematical practices. And I felt we really needed this kind of, you know, synth- synthetic approach uh, to make sense of of these questions that are very puzzling, which we'll be talking about today, I suppose.
0: Well, that's fabulous. Um, So, uh let's let's begin at the beginning um and i should say just straight away that i this is a really fabulous book and um even for uh, a, a person like me who's not an expert or this is not you know philosophy of logic is is not my research area though i occasionally teach logic this was a a, a a real delight to read so um uh, well, let's begin at the beginning um you identify sort of three key features of deduction or deductive inferences. Um, can you tell us what they are, and um, and then describe for us how um, when when deduction is understood a little bit more precisely, you know, you could see all of the the you know the points at which philosophical troubles begin to emerge.
1: Right. Yes. Yeah, so I, I distinguish three main features in the book, indeed, and these are the the cornerstones for for the whole investigation in the book. The first property of a deductive argument or deductive reasoning is necessary truth preservation. Of course, nobody's surprised by that one because this is also what distinguishes deduction from other forms of inference and argument, for example, inductive inference or abduction. Mm-hmm. So also it's really the idea that when you know if you have premise A and B and they are and, the, and then there's a conclusion C, which follows deductively from A and B, then C has to be true if A and B are true. There's absolutely no exception, right? It has to be the case. So so that that property is is quite puzzling. And uh, so that's definitely, but at the same time, you know, widely recognized as being one of the main, or perhaps even the main feature of deduction. So nobody disputes that. But my point in the book was also to uh, um, emphasize that there are at least two other features that are also extremely important, which tend to be under-theorized in these discussions and philosophy of logic. And these are, the second one is what I call perspicuity, which is, right, so it's taken also from the the Wittgensteinian idea of uh, Mm Übersichtlichkeit. And uh, so the thought is that a a deductive argument has to be, uh, is actually a a stepwise procedure, right? So you don't go from premises straight to conclusion, right? If a mathematician does this, people are going to say, look, this is a terrible proof, right? (laughs) We're not buying this. So you really need to go in this stepwise way. And how detailed you're going to be will depend on the intended audience of your proof, right? But in, even when it's very condensed, there's still this idea that it's a stepwise procedure, right? right. And so, and then the idea is that each of these steps should be sufficiently clear for the intended audience so that they will actually, when they run through, when they go through the different steps, in the right order, eventually they'll see how the premises are connected to the conclusion. So that aspect is very important. And finally, the third aspect that I emphasize is the idea that, uh, I mean, it, at least in its simplest formulation, right, it's kind of most basic formulation, the game of deduction uh, is played with no involvement of your own beliefs, right? So mm-hmm. you're not, uh, what, you, what you yourself think of the premises should play no role at all when you're evaluating the validity of a deductive argument, right? So this is just the, an example that I give in the book, if you start with um, something like, you know, all cows are blue, all blue things are made of stone. So what's the conclusion? All cows are made of stone. And if you say this, for example, which I have done, say, for example, to a class of high school students, they look at you and they think you're nuts. Right? Why would anyone <laughs> even bother about an argument that's just so preposterous? And the whole point is, of course, that for us uh, is really, I mean, if you're looking at deduction from this point of view of validity, you don't care right? What, right? what people think or do not think about the premises. And this is actually something on the one hand you might say, well, that's pretty obvious. Why, why do we even have to make that explicit? But actually, this is cognitively very difficult. Right? People really tend to hold on to the beliefs they already have and evaluate arguments. Uh, on the basis of their own doxastic attitudes towards in particular the conclusion, but also the premises. So so it was important, I thought, to distinguish these three features right of deduction and uh, and use them to uh, discuss you know different manifestations of the phenomena that I was interested in. And as, yeah, then you asked me about, like, what are the questions, right? Why, why is this a problem? Why, why did I even bother writing a whole book? Right, about <laughs> right. Haven't we figured it out already long ago? Well, we haven't, right? So this is the whole point. And the thing is that even though, of course, deduction has been uh, around for millennia, so I, I, in the book I claim that the first theoretical articulation of the notion of deduction is uh, to be found in Aristotle, in the prior analytics, and I also, by the way, discuss uh, uh, other logical traditions, but uh, that all happened a little later. So I think it's still fair to say that, you know, in the even in world history, Aristotle was the first who uh, codified the notion of deduction. But even uh, right in the times of the notion of sil- what we now call syllogisms, but even early on, for example, Sextus Empiricus and others, they were already thinking there's something fishy about deduction. You know what's well, what's going on here and one of the worries has been that deduction doesn't seem to be very useful right? because the thought is that you have to you know when you're reasoning or when you're right when you're what you want is to expand the knowledge that you already have right so you start with certain premises and then you want to go beyond the knowledge containing those premises for your inference to be useful so in the, for example a typical example of a of an, what people call an ampliative inference would be something like an inductive inference, right? Where mm-hmm. the knowledge, that the information contained in the conclusion goes beyond what is contained on the premises. But deduction does not have this feature, right? Because the whole point is precisely that, in a sense, the, the conclusion is already contained in the premises. So there's this tension between the validity, the notion of valid, deductive validity, and the usefulness that, A deductive argument argument may or may not have, and that's something right. So I mentioned Sextus Empiricus, but also somebody like Descartes also Mm -hmm. said, well, you know, uh, when he was talking about scholastic logic, he said, well, this is really just a logic, a a way of expounding to others what one already knows. It's not a logic of discovery. I don't discover new truths by using, say, scholastic logic, right? So this this idea has been around for many for centuries. And more recently, people like uh, Hintika, for example, he have formulated this in terms of the scandal of deduction, right? So how is right. it, how can a deductive argument be informative and valid at the same time? So this is one of the problems, right, that I address in the book. I mean, there are a few others. I don't know if you want me to go on and mention a few yeah, could you
0: Could you mention a couple of the others? I think that the, they'll come in handy later.
1: Yes. So one of them, another one is, you know, how ubiquitous is deduction really, right? So- mm-hmm. So how, how, where, where do we find deduction? Is it all around us, right? Does, does everybody engage regularly in deductive reasoning in their daily lives, yes or no? So uh, many traditional philosophers like to think that, yes, deduction is everywhere, but if you look at uh, a lot of the experimental work that's been done for decades on the psychology of reasoning, you see that people do quite poorly in deductive reasoning experiments. And that is, of course, you know, puts pressure on the idea that deduction is everywhere. But if deduction is not everywhere, right? For example, in a Kantian way, you might say, well, Kant thinks that uh, logic, you know, provides the conditions for thought as such, right? And, uh, and so that that seems to imply that deductive reasoning would be a bit pretty much everywhere. But then when you start seeing these uh, results, these experimental results that seem to suggest that people are not very good deductive reasoners, that really puts pressure, right, on this idea that deduction should really be the kind of the foundation, provides the foundation for reasoning as such, for thought as such. And mm-hmm. so then you then you have the question, do, do we then do want to conclude that the, the deduction is nowhere, right? That it was something <laughs> like phlogiston, right? Something that we're theorizing about, but just simply does not exist. And I don't want to go as far as that, right? So in the book, I say it's not really like phlogiston, but it's not nearly as widespread as you know other people have claimed it to be so that's another problem and the other problem has to do with the very nature of deductive necessity right which is really what is so fundamental about deductive arguments when compared to other kinds of arguments and you really get into all kinds of difficult philosophical problems when you try to make sense of the nature of this necessity why is it that you know if uh, Socrates is a human, and all humans are mortal. Why is it that it's necessarily the case that Socrates will be immortal? So, so there, there are many different, you know, uh, uh, takes on this, on what you know, the nature of deductive necessity in the literature. But I really think that none of them is has really kind of cracked the puzzle for us. So I thought that at least for these three, right, these three problems that I've just mentioned, really, uh, you know, indicated that there's still you know, we still need to think about deduction from, you know, from a philosophical perspective more
0: carefully. Great. That's fabulous. Um, and just picking up on that. So you, you describe in one of the chapters, early chapters goes into a couple of the you know competing accounts of the nature of the entailment relation or the, the nature of, uh, you know, the, 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 the relation that, uh, uh, that upholds in a valid deductive inference, um, you know, some of them rely on models and and this sort of thing. And um, you find them sort of insufficient in, in addressing some of the the philosophical questions that emerge out of uh, uh, the nature of, of deduction. Um, And that we need to look for dialogue, look at dialogue for the root of deduction. You know, can you give us the sort of the big picture here uh, that, that the book is aimed at advancing?
1: Yeah. So the big picture, I guess the main enemy of the book, as it were, right. So the view that uh, the book mostly criticizes is the idea that deductive reasoning is something that pertains to the mental realm. It pertains Mm. to thinking, pertains to kind of the individual realm of thoughts, right? Right. And this is something that you see, especially where we started uh, this idea of like this uh, connection between logic and thought is something that kind of already started a bit in the Latin Middle Ages, but really got consolidated with Descartes (laughs) And other early modern thinkers, and then it culminates with Kant, right? This meant what I call a mentalistic conception of logic, right, as pertaining to mental events of to thought, right. and uh, and so I the, one of the main thing that I claim in the book is that this is wrong, right? That if you really want to understand logic and deduction, you need to go back to uh, to the root, the historical roots of deduction, which are dial- through and through dialogical. So that's the big, the big kind of uh, uh, disagreement that I have with a lot of the more traditional views, and then that. Uh, but that's at this very philosophical level. But also in the literature on falsity of logic of the last many decades, the the main so the main uh, uh, takes the main approaches have been model theoretical accounts of of logical consequence and proof theoretical accounts of logical consequence. Mm-hmm. So now we're already looking at kind of technical approaches, right, technical frameworks to, tie, to try to kind of tame the very notion of deduction, right, whereas before I was talking about like the, you know, the more philosophical level of what deduction is all about. And these, so these, these two approaches, right, both the theoretical approaches and proof theoretical approaches, I mean, there's been a lot of super interesting technical work, and I mean, I've also kind of done work a bit on both uh, the philosophical discussions around both traditions, But I claim in the book that neither of them really, uh, you know, gets at the heart of the whole thing, right? Really, in the end, they both kind of run into all kinds of problems, and these problems are recognized in the literature. So it's not so much that I'm the first one saying, "Well, see, the proof, the model theoretical account has these problems, and the proof theoretical account has those problems." This, these, these remarks or these, these diagnoses are already available in the literature, and the problem is that we seem to be kind of stuck in this situation (laughs) where you know, we like there are good arguments uh, against each of these approaches and the other side doesn't really manage to kind of give a proper reply. So it seems like, you know, we're really, we're stuck and we need a new perspective to get, you know, these discussions moving. It's like a bit of a stalemate that has been uh, reached, you know, where and it's also not clear what kind of evidence we can rely on to decide these disputes between say model theoretical accounts and proof theoretical accounts. So, you know, so that's why I thought, well, we need a gestalt shift, right? We need a different perspective. And let me, you know, propose this dialogical conception of deduction to see where it takes us.
0: Great, great. Um, Yeah, you know, this happens often, I guess, in in philosophical disputes where there's a certain point where two competing accounts just, you know... um, you know, just sit alone eating their bullets, you know, chewing yes. on the bullets that they have to bite, and that's sort of you know where things kind of hang out. You know, things are in a holding pattern because everyone's just you know chewing on the bullets each of them has to bite. Um, yes, yes <laughs> yeah. exactly.
1: Um, yeah, they, they do, at some point you just get bored. Yeah,
0: that's <laughs> the, the, that's right. And um, but as you say, and um, you know the 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 motivating problem that created the two camps and the 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 crossfire between them. Um, still remains unsolved, right? Yes, <laughs> yeah,
1: yes right. and then my proposal will be that, right? So my my framework um, accommodates the insights of both, right. right? So that's why it's more like you know, well, we're both right to some extent, but also wrong to some extent. So, right? Yeah.
0: Fantastic. So l- let's get into uh, uh, the proposal. So we are uh, you're you're asking us to look at the root, uh, what you uh, of deduction, which. Uh, you claim is in, um, you know, uh, dialogical practices, discourses. Um, And then you think that, or you propose to us that we can think of deduction as emerging out of what you call prover skeptic games. Um, Can you explain how those games um, uh, comport with or fit in with the three features of deduction and how understanding deduction as, uh, the sort of the byproduct or the, the something that emerges out of these kinds of special kinds of dialectical exchanges um, addresses some of the philosophical um, problems with deduction?
1: Yes, yeah, so first of all, I mean, uh, as I mentioned, right, the, the, the hypothesis, the dialogical hypothesis is very much inspired by the historical development of deduction mm-hmm. uh, in ancient Greece in particular. But actually, as I mentioned, I also talk about Indian logic and Chinese logic a bit in the book. And you see something similar, and the thought is that both in logic and philosophy and in mathematics, it's really uh, practices of debating, dialogical practices that are you know uh, that provided the conditions, the social, political, cultural conditions for the emergence of argumentative practices, which then in turn went on to develop into deductive argumentative practices. So that's the, the the historical motivation. But when I speak of the roots of deduction, I mean it also in a broader sense. I also mean in a a cognitive sense, right? So I spent quite a bit of uh, time in the book talking about how best to learn to reason deductively, right? So when I claim that it's better to approach it dialogically, but also so philosophically, right? So it's really uh, the the, the idea of roots is quite, quite broad here. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's inspired, by the way, by Quine, right? So the roots of Mm -hmm. reference. So maybe some people have made a connection already or not. But while Quine thinks of the root of reference, so roots of reference really only at the level of, all, of what he himself called the psychogenesis of reference, my sense of roots is broader, mm-hmm. and so so that that was the kind of the initial motivation for the book, and then uh, for the whole like for the investigation, right? and then uh, when uh, uh, but of course uh, I was I'm not the first person in recent times to have. Proposed right a, a, a dialogical approaches to logic. So I've ha- I have some predecessors in the 20th century, and I also discussed them. Uh, in particular, Lawrence and right with the German uh, school of dialogical logic, and also uh, Jakob hintika's uh, game theoretical semantics are the two main examples that I discuss. And so, so of course, this idea has been kind of floating a bit in the air. And this, they were by uh, by the way, fundamentally inspired by develop- developments in game theory. And so the, the emergence of game theory was a, an important uh, factor, right, for, for the development of these dialogical approaches. But uh, so then, and, and the other person that has been an important influence for me is Lakatos, mm-hmm. And La, right, so with the idea of proofs and refutations. And so Lakatos, for those of you who remember, right, so he has this idea that mathematical knowledge is produced uh, by, you know, through the interplay between somebody putting forward uh, a proof, a conjecture, and then other people coming coming up with all kinds of objections to the way the proof is formulated. And then the, the initial formulation of the proof then gets revised. And he claims that this is how mathematical knowledge is essentially produced. And so you can think about, right, so uh, uh, in this sense of the, the proofs and refutations dynamic as if it would be involving two characters, the prover and the refuter, right? Yeah. Somebody's doing the proof and somebody else is doing is coming up with objections and refuting steps of the proof. And so in the book, I claim that uh, I think the refuter does understood is, is just too narrow as a character. And that's why I propose instead the, the idea of the skeptic. And this is also, again, something that's also, was a, this terminology was also already available in literature on, co- on computer science. So it's not a terminology that I invented. But I, I started using this terminology, prover skeptic. Uh, whereas at the beginning I was still using the and terminology of proponent and opponent, and then mm-hmm. I moved away from that. But prover and skeptic really seemed to me to capture what I was after, right? So the idea there's somebody who's, they're functional terms, right? So somebody's putting forward a proof, that's the prover, and the skeptic is the one who's asking questions, is the inquirer, right? Mm-hmm. And, and the skeptic is not only in the business of coming up with counterexamples, uh, right? So that's why it's not just a refuter. But the skeptic also has a very important job of asking for clarifications along the way to make sure that each of the steps of the proof is clear, is perspicuous, and now you see already where I'm going because mm-hmm. this gives me a very straightforward connection with these three pillars of deduction that I uh, that I mentioned at the beginning. So first of all, you have the idea of necessary truth preservation. How do you understand this in these games? Well, it means that every every step in the in the, in this di- in these dialogues has to be necessarily truth preserving, right? There can be no exceptions to the to the step to to the right. So there are no exceptions in the sense that wherever the premises are the case, then the conclusion will also be the case for that particular step. And then if you just chain those steps that are individually necessarily truth preserving, the idea is that the whole argument will also have this property. And uh, and the dialogical motivation for this is that you, you know the Prover really wants arguments that are very difficult to refute, right? And, mm-hmm. they, and, and other, these other uh, approaches, dialogical approaches to logic that I just mentioned, Lawrence and Hintica, they, they conceived of these dialogues as essentially adversarial. Right? They really thought that Prover, well, so in, in Lawrence's terms, the proponent, the opponent, they were really competing with each other and it would be like a zero sum game. One would win and the other would lose. And in that context, if you think about these dialogues in this way, it becomes very natural to think about uh, necessity in terms of winning strategies, right? Mm-hmm. So what uh, characterizes a deductive argument is that it's a winning strategy for the one proposing the argument. There's nothing that the other can do to undermine, right, the, 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 right. the steps. So the argument is indefeasible in this way. So that idea for necessity and uh, and it's, it's i think it's it was a an important inspiration for me and i still think it's a it's an interesting very interesting idea but the point is that i don't think of these dialogues as zero-sum games i actually think there's a very important component of cooperation between my my two participants right prover and skeptic and so i cannot use the notion of winning strategy in the way that these other authors did and still i think the idea of a very strong argument, an argument that's indefeasible, has, uh, you know, an appeal in a con- the context where you're trying to persuade somebody, right, of a different right. point of view. So so in that sense, it, uh, this dialogical uh, uh, explanation, right, rationale for the property of necessary truth preservation becomes quite natural. You just want your arguments to be really, really strong, right, so that you can persuade your interlocutor. That's for necessary truth preservation. For perspicuity, uh, and, oh yeah, and by the way, then the, the corresponding moves by skeptic in this case to ensure right the property of necessary truth preservation is to come up with counter examples if there are any. Right? right. So it's the job of skeptic to, to make sure that each step is necessarily truth preserving in this way. And, so and uh, for perspicuity, it's also the job, it's a different uh, job for skeptic namely that of making sure that each of the steps is very clear and whenever there's a step that's just too quick right and skeptic goes like "Mm, i don't know i'm just not you know this i'm not getting this it's too fast too quick for me or it looks fishy or whatever then skeptic goes on and says but why why you know what's going on here can you break down this step into more you know more details and finally the the third idea of um you have to be kind of abstract away from your own beliefs with respect to the premises. From a dialogical perspective, it's very natural because it simply means that you should be able to draw conclusions from the positions of your interlocutors, so not your own positions, right? So when I'm talking to somebody, I should be able to also say what would follow from their own discursive commitments, which are not necessarily mine. And so this idea of detaching from your own position it's particularly useful in these dialogical settings where you're also drawing conclusions from the position of the person you're talking to.
0: Right. So that that complicates, though, um, uh, you know, part of what we're talking about when we're talking about the, the job that Prover has does seem like it's a little bit more naturally tied to what prover wants to demonstrate. Right? That's right. right. So, so I guess that you saying, yeah it, it yeah it, prover does have that role but there's this other role too which is prover doesn't is, isn't only in the business of proving the things that he or she wants <laughs> to show there's also a um a role taking uh uh element that prover um um uh uh, uh there's also a role-playing element of what prover does. Does that seem right? Or uh, yes, thinking into the other person's perspective. Is that right? That's
1: true, because the prover is always presenting an argument to a particular audience. There's I always a target, a target audience in mind, right? And this is I, I use the term granularity for this, right? So how detailed should the proof be? How granular should it be? Well, it will depend on the audience, right? So prover is formulating a proof to a specific skeptic, to a specific audience right so in this sense you know if you're a professional mathematician the way you're going to formulate your proof if you're talking to a peer right to a fellow mathematician it's going to be very condensed right it's just going to be the main ideas and that's it but if you're presenting a proof to students of course then you're going to be much more detailed so of course prover is also right uh, modulating right so the the shape and feel of the proof adapting that towards the audience but uh, uh, but at the same time, what I claim in the book is that uh, they, they also uh, this, these are these are also dialogues of mixed motivations. So mm-hmm. prover does want to prove, right? And I mean when I when I say the prover does want to prove, I'm talking about mathematical practice. So if you look at how mathematicians go about their business, there are a lot of incentives for them to come up with nice proofs. By the way, in fact, I mean that's really kind of supposed to be the the ultimate test, right? A mathematician is a good mathematician if he or she comes up with interesting and innovative proofs. Uh, so that there's that's a very strong intent center for that. But skeptic is not so much motivated by you know blocking the proof at all costs. That's not the thought. Skeptic is kind of more neutral in the story. But skeptic, the job of skeptic is willing to ensure that it really is a good proof. And in that sense, skeptic is helping prover. To formulate a proof that is sufficiently clear for the intended audience, I see, right? I see. So it's in that sense that they're they're cooperating, even though I mean, there's a certain amount of a slight disalignment of interests because Prover really wants the proof to go through, right? For glory and fame, <laughs> <laughs> and 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 tenure and publications, right, and money but but at the same time uh and as a skeptic is is more neutral with respect to that right so there's a slightly misalignment of interests, but by and large they're cooperating in this joint endeavor of producing a good proof for the community as a whole
0: so great that's very helpful can, can you tell us then how this model of understanding sort of um how deductive inference emerges um uh, how does that help us address some of the philosophical problems that deduction um, ro- um, occasions?
1: Yes. So one of the, the problems that's been discussed quite a bit in the literature and philosophy of logic of the last 10, 20 years is the issue of the normativity of logic. So mm-hmm. you may have heard of that. right? So there's this thought that, which is a Kantian idea really, right? So that logic is normative for thought as such. And a lot of people try to make sense of what exactly the, the normative import of logic should be. And uh back in the 70s, uh, Gil Harman wrote a very influential attack on this on this idea, right in his book Changing View. And uh, so basically he said, well, it just doesn't work. this idea that logic should have normative import for thought because you know, he had all kinds of arguments against this view. One of them is the 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 clutter argument, right the point of the idea is that there are too many things that follow from any given set of premises, and then, they end up, would end up clutter the mind, if you were, to really, really draw all the logical conclusions from a set of premises. I mean, it has right. a bunch of different arguments. And people have since have been trying to still make sense of the idea of normativity of logic. And uh, so what I say, uh, in fact, I've also published a, a paper on this early on in the project, uh, and then also in the book I go back to this, I, I say that, well, this is just uh, this is the wrong way to think about the normativity of logic. The normativity of logic pertains not to thought, but it pertains to these dialogical practices. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't pertain to the mono-agent situation of somebody just, you know, managing their beliefs, right, and their thoughts by themselves. Rather, it pertains to the multi-agent situation of people arguing with each other in very specific kinds of dialogical games, right? I'm not even, by the way, that's probably important to mention this. I'm not saying that any dialogue, you know, out there in real life will actually be an instance of these these prover-skeptic dialogues. No, they're very niche. They're very specific, right, to certain practices, in particular within mathematics and other theoretical fields, right? But then the claim is that this this whole idea of the normativity of logic really makes a lot more sense if you think about this normativity as pertaining to these dialogical practices rather than to thought. And then also the idea of the usefulness, right? Remember the one that I mentioned at the beginning, so that it looks like uh, argumentation, uh, deduction, uh, a deductive argument is not going to be very useful, because basically you already know the conclusion, right, before you engage in the, in the deductive argument. And that's exactly what Descartes said. He said, well, it's only useful to expound to others what, what you already know. Exactly, that is the whole point. It's something that's particularly useful in these multi-agent situations of exchanging views and positions and trying to persuade other people, right? So then you immediately see that at the same time, the argument will be valid and perhaps not informative for the person who first formulated the argument, right? Even though usually to come up with a non-trivial deductive argument, like a mathematical proof, it's a lot of work, right? So it's yeah, definitely not you know, straightforward at all. But it's mostly, you know, it's aimed for the consumption of somebody else, right? Who will then become convinced of the conclusion by running through the steps of the argument. So, so in this way, you see that a lot of these uh, you know perennial problems about deduction and deductive reasoning. If you think about them from this dialogical angle, you see that a lot of the the puzzlement and the difficulties seem to dissolve. Right,
0: right, fabulous. So the the second part of the book um, explores the the history in thinking about deduction, um, and as you've already mentioned, um, although you start with uh, some uh, some ideas that I I suspect will be familiar to people uh, listening to us right now. Um, You also bring in traditions, uh, um, Indian and Chinese uh, in logical thinking uh, and working through uh, right up through the medieval period. Um, The historical story you tell about how deduction sort of develops in the, in the history um, uh, has a lot to do with sort of, it's a kind of history of forgetting. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's sort of a, a history by which we come to forget. Um uh or, and in virtue of forgetting we come to um misunderstand what we're doing. <laughs> if that makes sense. That so makes can you tell us sense. a little bit about that story? Yeah. Yes.
1: Yes, yeah, so I mean just perhaps it's useful to mention that the way I kind of the, the methodological principle for for this historical part of the book is the the idea of genealogy as like a genealogy mm-hmm. A genealogical analysis kind of in the Nietzschean sense, in the Foucaultian-Nietzschean sense where you just go back and then you kind of try to trace the different steps of transformation of these practices, right? So the interesting things, of course, and also very important to mention, is that while I claim that deductive practices started, you know, very closely related to dialogical practices, practices very early on they also acquired non-biological features, for example, pertaining to writing, right? Let's so, say the use of particular uh, notational tools and all that. So, so a lot it changes a lot along the way. But my claim is that you still see very much traces of these dialogical origins. And by as you say, by forgetting about them, we are actually we that's why how we ended up in the situation where we're not really understanding what we're talking about, right? Mm-hmm. For lack of like an understanding of the these historical developments that still shape. Both theories and practices of deduction now. And, and the story I mean the story I tell there in a sense, is not at all novel, right? I mean, I really locate the birth of, of uh, deductive practices in, in ancient Greece and in particular against the background of Athenian democracy. And I emphasize the importance of these, uh, the political, cultural context, right of people debating with each other in the assembly and all that, and how important it was to be persuasive. And then I claim that, say, both Plato and Aristotle are actually reacting to a certain model of argumentation, what which they attribute to the sophists, and they say that they, the sophists, are only interested in persuasion and are not interested in truth, whereas they are interested in truth, but they also remain interested in persuasion, right? It has to be they they can't they they can't afford the luxury of not paying attention to persuasion in a context that still requires you know people to, to you know, be political agents that are arguing with each other and trying to convince each other of their position. And then, so then you have Aristotle, who is the first, who codifies, like, these ideas, uh, these the, the dialogical practices in a, in a logical system, first with the topics, which is not ex- yet logic, but it's already a, re- a regimentation of these dialectical practices. And then, of course, in the prior analytics with syllogistic, then it really becomes the first logical system as we know it. And uh, so, yeah, I also talk quite a bit about Plato and also the idea of an elencus, and I claim that an elencus, right, a refutation as a very important, historically speaking, a very important element in the emergence of a deduction. And then I claim that, you know, for many, many centuries, this idea of logic as essentially tied to dialogical practices remained the dominant conception of logic all the way up to the end of the Latin Middle Ages. And that's when the, 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 the history of forgetting begins, right? As I already mentioned, when people really started thinking more and more about logic in mentalistic terms. And then, you know, that leads us, you know, through Descartes and Kant all the way to what is still, I guess, the received view of logic as pertaining to, primarily pertaining to thought and mental right. processes, right? And, and I also looked briefly at these other logical traditions and I mean, I want to say, from the start, I'm not an expert in any way in Indian or Chinese logic. So I, I got a lot of help from people who do, <laughs> do know their, their stuff on these, on these uh, traditions. But I, I really felt that it was very important to include, right, these other narratives, in, especially because, I mean, I think it's just a scandal, right, that we're still thinking of philosophy in such a parochial way, yeah. not only looking at like the, you know, European tradition and its ramifications. But then also another reason to talk about the Indian and the Chinese philosophy is because they actually strengthen my case. Yeah. <laughs> These traditions, they also, we uh, you know, it's also clear that there too, logic and uh, emerges very much from dialogical practices, practices of debating, and uh, in different ways, right? So both the Indian tradition and the Chinese tradition are quite different from, the, from each other and from the Greek tradition. But in all three of them, you see this strong connection between dialogues and logic and deduction. So well, deduction only really not perhaps articulated in the same way as in the Greek sense, but certainly these dialogical practices and principles of logic. So I thought it was important also to include that in the book, and uh, right and to show that there are like these alternative ways of you know developing uh, these uh, these concepts, but there's also some convergence there.
0: Right, right. Could you um, you know, as I was um, reading that. Uh... The section, is particularly on Indian logic, um, I was reminded of, you know, a, a, a wonderful essay that, that 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 you do mention, uh, Amartya Sen's essay on the argumentative Indian. <laughs> oh yes, 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 that's beautiful. Yes. Uh, uh, so, can you tell us just a little bit more, though, about um, uh, something that you said explicitly with respect to Plato and Aristotle and the the, the interest in logic as um, a resp- and, and the interest in deduction? As a response to um, certain social and political characteristics uh, 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 that 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 follow out of uh, um, uh, democratic self-government, particularly, you know, we're used to thinking of Socrates versus the Sophists, and, yes. and that's definitely a political, politically intoned uh, 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 dispute. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about the? Um, uh, the social and political um, aspects of the dialogical account of deduction.
1: Yes. Yeah, so, so, so yeah, really the stories that, uh, um, and again, this is a story that's been told by other people, ravionettes Jeffrey Lloyd, right? So I'm you really relying on yeah. a lot of scholarship that has already been done by other people. Uh, but yeah, so it's really this idea that you have the, the, right. So there's this, a background of, uh, you know, the, the, the background of the Athenian democracy where people have to be good orators or right, have to be persuasive. And then there the, the, the were the sophists, presumably, who, uh, who uh, emphasized long speeches, right, who really thought that, well, you know, this is the best way to be persuasive is to come up with these very long speeches in the assembly and then you get people to, you know, vote for you. And of course, uh, this is something that Plato criticizes very, very much right? in the Republic sure. and in the Gorgias and in many other places. And then, and then Plato himself said, well, you know, in the mouth, uh, using Socrates as his mouthpiece, he says, well, this is not really. I, I, I don't like this model of the long speeches. We should do something else. We should actually do like these uh, dialogues, you know, with short alternating bouts, right? So I say something, you say something back, and you, right? So we alternate much more. And they really kind of this was in a sense a rejection of the sophist model, which in turn uh, was uh, something Plato's rejection of the whole idea of democracy is very much tied also to the historical circumstances, right? There was they had just had, they had just had that horrific, the horrific wars, right, of the mm-hmm. Peloponnese, and uh, and they just they had lost, right? And so and then so somebody like Plato is looking around and thinking, hey, democracy got us in a lot of trouble. Right. So just made us really kind of like we started out as like the, you know, the the, the hot kids in town, and now we're just we're just the underdogs. So I think (laughs) that this the kind of this 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 critical stance towards democratic practices, which in turn they associated with this style of discourse based on rhetoric, on long speeches and all that. uh, that right, so there was a rejection of all this, very much also motivated by the demise of Athens, right, as a result of these wars. And so, then, instead, that there's this other model, which is much more dialectical, right? The dialogical, dialectical, where people take turns when they speak, and then that really kind of gave gave rise to uh, to this way of arguing, which is what you see in, say, Plato's dialogues, and then later got uh, uh, regimented by Aristotle in the Topics. So that's kind of the the thought here, right? That there's really this uh, as a reaction to a particular discursive mode. Then came the, this this kind of more di- dialogical mode of uh, engagement, which in turn then led to the development, for example, of the, of the syllogistic system by Aristotle. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: Fabulous, fabulous. So, the, the the third part of the book um, talks about some of the cognitive um, um, research with respect to how actual you know, embodied, socially embedded exactly. uh, uh, thinking creatures <laughs> go about um, inferring uh, 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 um, uh, new things from things that they they already uh, accept or know. Um, and I take it that one advantage of your dialogical view about deduction is that it, it's able to accommodate some of the more unflattering results <laughs> yes. from this kind of... Um, uh, from this kind of empirical study, you know, when we when we're thinking of deduction and deductive inference and validity as um, the sort of gold standard of 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 thought of you know of some kind of rationality uh, that's you know somewhere behind the eyes and and between the ears, yes. um, you know, it, it, it it's sort of. Um, it's it's a little disconcerting to to discover how bad we are at it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what to make
1: of that, right? Yes, exactly, yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. That's right. Uh, you know, so you you see how bad we are at the Wason selection task, and how you know how how easily we we commit certain kinds of just straightforward formal fallacies. You know, it starts looking, uh, you know, the, the portrait that emerges of human thinking is, is it starts looking pretty depressing. Yes. Um, but your view takes a different account of all of this, and um, so can you tell us a bit about um, first some of the some of the disconcerting or troubling results from the empirical study, and then how the dialogical view might not be um, so depressing as some of the other models.
1: Are. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, yes. I mean, this this body of research really started in the '60s with Weydemann. and He was yeah. uh, the pioneer, right? When people started. Doing running these experiments with deductive reasoning tasks and started to realize that people did really badly, right? That it was dismal, right? People's uh, deductive capacities, at least in these artificial settings, right, of experiments in the laboratory. But and then people really struggled for decades, uh, these experimental uh, psychologists, to make sense of what was going on. And that's where also this whole literature on reasoning biases has emerged mm-hmm. because people then observed that the mistakes, right, uh, quote-unquote mistakes that people made were not random, right? There was systematicity in these mistakes. And that, so there's, of course, a, this whole tradition of heuristics and biases from the Traversky-Kahneman tradition, which is more has to do more with probabilities, etc. But it really very much kind of goes together with what was happening in the psychology of reasoning uh, literature. And so people started thinking, well, you know, like, what, what do we make of this, right? So are we using And still using logic, in particular syllogistic and, and, uh, you know, conditionals like modus ponens and all this, as the normative canon, right, to evaluate the reasoning performance of participants. And then people started to think, you know, what do we make of this? And so what happened eventually is that now this has really, nobody thinks anymore that, you know, that deductive logics are a good descriptive model of how people actually reason. And so what people from by and large now think is that reasoning, human reasoning in the wild, as it were, is essentially defeasible and non-monotonic, right? So it really has, uh, operates with principles that are very, very different from the principles, the canons of deductive reasoning, which is indefeasible and monotonic. Right. And so then you, how exactly you describe this? There are, there are discussions. Should you use non-monotonic logics? Should you use Bayes and probabilities, right? So this is still a discussion. But at the same time that people seem to be to do very badly, typically in these reasoning experiments, at least, you know, on average, right? They're always like the, some people do well. There's quite, quite some individual variation, but still, right? I mean, by and large, people don't do very well. But at the same time, people, also, some other people were conducting similar experiments, but letting people solve deductive tasks in groups. Hmm. Right. And what was interesting was that suddenly you, when you're dealing with kind of logical questions, what people notice is that if you put people in groups to discuss, uh, you know, and solve the, these puzzles, they actually get things right way more right in the deductive sense of right. So that is already, I think, a vindication of the the whole idea that the the, the the dialogical conception of deduction, because right, it seems that when people really discuss with each other and look at the pros and cons and write and analyze reasons together, do what Bob Branham calls the the giving and asking for reasons, mm-hmm. they really Kind of come, you know, find many the, the right deductive solution much more often than when they're doing it on their own. So that really is already an indication that people, uh, if you if you present the deductive uh, deductive reasoning as a particular language game, right, to use a Wittgensteinian term, which is very specific to these kind of ways of interacting with each other that are not intended to just zoom into. Say what you know the most plausible model to the both of us, but rather to really see all the possibilities and consider all the different models. And if we do that together, uh, reasoning performance uh, improves. So that really seems to be uh, a, you know good news for the both for us as humans and for and for my hypothesis, my dialogical hypothesis. So in the end, what 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 you see is that you know in these reasoning tasks in the lab. People don't really understand what game they're supposed to play, right? I mean, they're not—it's right. really, not clear they're playing the game of reasoning, kind of you know under defeasible circumstances and all this, which is what we do in daily life. But uh, whereas you know the, the the deductive game is a cognitive oddity, right? To ask people to reason following patterns of indefeasibility, right, and do monotonic reasoning, this is a cognitive oddity. But if put in the right context. If you explain to people, look, this is the game we're playing here. We want to rule out all possible, possible exceptions, right? So that whenever the premises are the case, the conclusion also has to be the case. When you know when it, that is made clear to people, to, to reasoners, they actually are able to reason deductively more, you know, at least they do better than they would otherwise. So by and large, it's really a matter of like not having been clear on what language game they should have been playing in the first place.
0: You know, I have I remember, again, I can't even remember the source, but I, I I'd thought that there were some um, results that college kids do better on the Waysan selection task when uh, the task is framed um, in terms of um, uh, being old enough to get into a bar or something. That's right, like that, that, yes, that there was.
1: <laughs> that, there's that, yes. This is something I've actually worked on in my previous book, Informal Languages and Logic, which is that, People are not very good at reasoning with what what these experimentalists call abstract material, right? Right. So if you're just just giving them letters and numbers and stuff, right, for the ways of selection test, people don't do very well. But if you formulate in terms of like, well, you know, the question is if you're uh, younger than the official drinking age or in some places 18 and the other places in the U.S. 21, then you shouldn't be drinking. And then people understand much better that they should turn the, both the card of the antecedent and then the negation of the consequence, but that's that's you know that has to do with the idea that if you give it content right rather than uh, just in the abstract people already do better yeah <laughs>
0: It's a testament to uh, how important it is for college kids to drink.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, this is, you know, it's, it's a matter of life or death, you know, so <laughs> got to know this stuff, yeah.
0: So, um, Katerita, you've been really generous uh, with your time. I wanted to make sure we um, got to talk about um, a, a distinction that you draw in the third part of the book and, and, and mentioned earlier uh, between the ontogeny and phylogeny of a deductive reasoning. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how those two sort of lenses for thinking about the roots sort of play into the account?
1: Sure. In fact, I also introduce a third one, which is the historical one, right? Because right. the, the, phy- the phylogenetic timescale is really, you know, all the way back. So uh, how do we even come to be able to learn how to reason deductively? What are the cognitive antecedents which are related to our evolutionary story that make it possible for us? to reason, right, to learn, first of all, to reason at all, and then to reason deductively, specifically. And here, of course, I'm responding to work, for example, by Mircea and Sperber, who have some ideas that are quite similar to mine, but in some respects, we also disagree. And then the thought here is that it's also important to have a story on how we actually come to be the kinds of beings that can actually learn how to reason deductively or how, you know, reasoning comes about in, in humans at all, right, reasoning understood in a certain way. So that's, that's the, like, the very long you know, like, time scale of way, looking way, way back. Right. And then there's the historical time scale, which is the one that is in, on record, right? Which is right. in writing. And that's where this, this, whole bit, this whole part that I was telling you about, like the historical emergence of deductive canons in ancient Greece, both in mathematics and in philosophy and logic and all this. This is the historical time scale. And then the ontogenetic time scale is when you just look at one particular individual, and you see, you know ask yourself why, how does this person learn how to reason deductively if they learn at all? And this question is of course particularly important for mathematics educators. So I've, this is also literature that I've engaged with quite a lot in the book, right? So how what mathematics educators have said about how, they, in fact, it, they say that it's difficult for students typically to learn how to write mathematical proofs. This is just something that people find difficult to do, even students of mathematics. But on the other hand, also many, many of them have uh, uh, experimented with different ways of teaching the technique of mathematical proof. And if you adopt a dialogical conception, a dialogical approach to proof, that it seems to really help students to understand much better what, is ex- what exactly is expected of them. When they're, you know, formulating a mathematical proof themselves, so, so you know, I thought it was important to distinguish these three uh, levels, right? The, the, these three kinds of roots, right? One that goes way, way back in time, to our, you know, uh, evolutionary past. Then the time frame, this the historical time frame, which has to do mm-hmm. with these cultural developments, right? That's where the cultural story really kicks in. And then finally, how a particular individual can learn how to reason deductively.
0: That's fabulous. Um- one last question. Um, wh- what's the next project?
1: Well, I mean, the project has been going on already for a while, right? Because I, I started in, in 2018. I started a project funded by the European Research Council on the social epistemology of argumentation. So basically, just as before in my previous project, I was looking at deductive argumentation specifically. Now I'm looking at argumentation much, much more broadly and including, uh, uh, you know, the different fields in which argumentation takes place. And of course, I uh, then end up also engaging with quite a lot of your work, Bob, of course, right? <laughs> on uh, deliberation and democracy, but also I'm also interested in argumentation in science in different different scientific domains, right? So I've done a lot of work on argumentation in mathematics specifically, and now I'm also with, with the help of a bunch of people, postdocs, PhD students, we're looking at argumentation also in other scientific domains and also looking at argumentation, for example, in politics. So in a sense, it's a natural continuation, uh, uh, you know, to, to the previous project on deduction specifically, but uh, but on the other hand, it's much broader, right? It looks at much much wider range of phenomena, and um, three years into this project, and now I'm starting to think already about the book that I write, where I'll summarize the main results of this project, and this time it's going to be a book, um, not as scholarly, right? I mean, really geared towards a, a broader audience. I also want to I would like the book to be read also by people outside of academia, so that's going to be an interesting challenge, right? It's a different way of writing. You you do it very well, right? So maybe I'll take some uh, you know inspiration from you, but that's kind of um, yeah. Hopefully, I you know I, I hope to start writing this book this you know this academic year and the next. So hopefully, in a few years, there will be a book on, on the social epistemology of argumentation.
0: Well, that sounds very exciting, and I look forward. Uh, to reading that book when when it when it comes out, um, but for now, uh, Katerina, it's, th- thank you for joining me on New Books in Philosophy. It's been really great talking to you.
1: Well, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure.
0: Um, well, thank you, um, thank you, listeners, for joining us uh, today on New Books in Philosophy. I remind you that um, I've been talking to uh, Katerina Dutil Novais. Novais, sorry. Um, And we've been talking about uh, Katerina's new book, which is titled The Dialogical Roots of Deduction. Um, The book is just out uh, with Cambridge University Press, and I I highly recommend it. Uh, Thanks for listening, and bye for now.